Once upon a time, God had a dream for the world, that we would reflect the beauty and love from which we were made, that we would not be alone, and that we would work and care for God's good world. At Awaken, we have centered our life around these ideas. When we gather, we want to be a reflection of God's love and beauty. When we meet in one another's homes, we remind each other that we were not meant to be alone. We were made for community. When we engage our neighborhoods and workplaces, we partner with God in the work of redeeming and restoring what God made good. Awaken is a safe place for us to explore who God is, to ask questions, and to wake up to God's dream. Awaken exists to demonstrate and announce the way of Jesus in the world and to partner with God in the removal of all things. Everybody, will you stand and let's sing together?
can be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Jenna. If we haven't met, I'm the associate pastor here at Awaken. Welcome to you if you are visiting or new this morning. It can be a big deal to come to a church, and so we're really glad you're here. Um, if you are interested in connecting at Awaken, there are cards in front of you. If you fill one of those out, someone from our staff or leadership team will contact you. We'd love to take you out for a beverage of your choice and get to know you a little bit more. Uh, on the flip side of those cards is a spot for prayer requests, so we would love to be praying with you through this week. Um, that, along with any tithes and offerings, can go by uh, the black. Go, excuse me, can go in the black boxes by each of the doors. Um, as far as community life this morning, it is all things Christmas. Uh, this year, Awaken is going to have a Christmas choir which is kind of cool. Um, so if you are interested in that, you don't have to be a great singer, um, but if that sounds fun, you would be singing at both gatherings on December 22nd, the Sunday, and then both gatherings on Christmas Eve, which is two and four. There are two mandatory rehearsals, Wednesday, December 11th and 18th at 7 p.m. Um, you have a week to think about it and sign up, so by December 1st, and you can email melody at awakenwestseventh.com if you're interested in that. Uh, next weekend is our Advent kickoff, so at 5.30, uh, you can come. We are going to be having meatballs. Uh, it's going to be really good. Uh, like a little dish of some mashed potatoes, some Swedish meatballs, a little gravy, lingonberries. If you are a vegetarian, we have an option for you, so don't feel isolated uh, or excluded. Um, so 5.30, and then after that, we'll be having a carol sing. It'll just be a really uh, laid-back time together, really fun, um, and you can bring Christmas cookies if you'd like. And then finally, just to note that our Christmas Eve gatherings are 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock this year. Um, you might be wondering why there is a horse trough on the stage. Fair question. Uh, every once in a while, we get to celebrate a significant moment in the life of the church through the sacrament of baptism. So this is one of those mornings. Um, baptism is a beautiful image and metaphor. Uh, when, we are, when we go underneath the waters, we identify with the death of Christ. And when we are raised up from the waters, we identify with the resurrection of Christ. Uh, they say that blood is thicker than water, which means, you know, our familial and ancestral ties tend to be the strongest bond of humanity, right? And yet baptism stands in direct, maybe, a challenge to that. Because our family is redefined in baptism. In the waters of baptism, we are marked and welcomed into a family. A family whose bond is our common faith in the work of Christ. A redefinition of who we belong to, who we are responsible to and for. And it's a challenge to the notion that we are only responsible to and belong to the people that we share a name with. And so today, what we are about to see is this image or this reenactment of that covenant where we are buried with Christ in baptism and we are raised to walk in the newness of life. So today, my sisters, Mallory and Catherine, 
Come to the waters of baptism to receive this washing and to identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. So I'd like to invite Mallory up to say a few words. So welcome her. I am a high school social worker, and I typically speak to 100 students on Friday mornings, but this is a lot more intimidating. <laughs> um, I started attending Awaken during the glory days back at the joke joint. I took a little hiatus, but thank God he brought me back here four years ago on a fall Sunday morning where I shared a moment with the lovely Jana Daniels that marked a pivotal turning point in my faith journey. Four years ago, you couldn't have paid me a million dollars to believe that I would be standing in front of a church community sharing my testimony. Over the years, I've sat in churches listening to people's faith stories, oftentimes becoming emotional because they typically are very moving and hopeful. However, if I'm going to be completely honest, my tears also came from a place of jealousy. How could they be so sure? How could they be so lucky to have God work like that in their life? Little did I know, it was always available to me as well, but I just needed the right set of eyes to see it and the willingness to receive it. Psalms 139.14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God made me unique, just as he did each and every one of you, giving us all special gifts. Over the past couple years, I've come to realize he's given me the gift to be vulnerable. However, being vulnerable with God was not always the way vulnerability showed up in my life. Growing up, I had a very loving family, supportive, and the best of friends. I still do. However, it was in my late teens and during my 20s that I started, a feeling, started feeling a sense of loneliness and longing for companionship that became rather destructive. That desire grew into this false need, leaving me insecure, vulnerable, and seeking connection and acceptance in the wrong ways, oftentimes with the wrong people. The shame and guilt ran deep, and these self-driven ways left me feeling more alone, further away from my true self, and worst of all, far away from God. While my faith in Jesus has always been there, I found myself picking and choosing whom I shared that part of me with, as well as picking and choosing how and when I was going to follow him. I lacked confidence in myself, and I lacked confidence in God. Because of my choices, my faith grew fragile at times, and now I, and I allowed myself to drift away from him. Many times I shook my fist at God in anger and frustration, frustration because he wasn't giving me what my heart was longing for. In hindsight, though, I've come to realize I was just frustrated and angry with myself, and it was me who was missing the mark on what I truly needed, and that was to be closer to him. Despite sin after sin and my own ego getting in the way, God never left me, and instead he faithfully pursued me like nothing else. He was loud and active and knew exactly how to reach me in his pursuit. How lucky are we that he knows us so well. I finally threw my hands in the air and said, all right, buddy, you win. It was then that I realized I had work to do and lots of it. Please don't mistake me when I say that. We do not have to do work to receive God's love and grace that's given to us freely. 
I just had some personal work to do, and I wanted God to be at the center of it. The invitations from him came one after another, and after saying yes to seeing a faith-based therapist and saying yes to joining the most amazing covenant group here at Awaken and saying yes to attending scripture studies with Steph Spencer, something I was deathly terrified at one point, saying goodbye to some old ways and fully surrendering to him without negotiation. My posture and gaze started to shift. My relationship with God and others started to shift and that void slowly was filled. Little did I know then that all of that work was preparing me for what God had next. Two and a half years ago, unexpectedly came my most wonderful call from God. He chose and gave, sorry. He chose and gave me the honor in adopting my 16-year-old son, Daryl, this past August. I started fostering D in September of 2018, and our journey has been far from seamless. It's consisted of peaks and valleys, breaking and healing, joy and fear, and a lot of unknowns. However, I'm so grateful because with the journey of becoming Dee's Mama Dukes came my other greatest gift from God, and that is the need to fully depend on him and trust him with all my heart. It is beyond amazing how faithful God has been through that gift, along with the strength and courage he has provided me every step of the way. And although I don't have proof of this, I trust just as he pursued me, he is doing the same for Dee every single day. And while my son and I are not exactly where I'd hoped and prayed for us to be at this given moment, I have trust and belief that everything has a part in his plan and his hand is in all of it. God had a plan bringing you and I together, but and even though at times when it seems really hard and seems like impossible, I believe that he will see us through it. Today I come as an imperfect sinner who wants to publicly accept my brother Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to bury and wash away some old ways and commit to saying yes, not with confidence in myself, but with confidence in him. I want to say thank you to Micah and Jenna and the rest of all of you for creating a community that I felt safe enough to share this with. I also want to say thank you to my friends and family who are here with me today. I love all of you. And lastly, I want to say thank you to my maker, my big guy upstairs, for showing me what unconditional love truly feels like and giving me a set of eyes to see him. Thank you. Um, you can stop. I told you you would cry. <laughs> um, so Mallory... Do you desire to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Do you receive the gift of God's grace in Jesus and trust fully in his work of redemption on the cross and through his resurrection? Relying on God's grace, do you intend to live a life consistent with the example of Jesus and to turn away from all that stands in opposition to his life and example? And empowered by the Spirit, do you intend to participate fully in the life of the church, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? Amen.
This is my friend, Catherine Hewn. Catherine, I'll ask you the same questions you heard, and you can respond, I do or I will, okay? If you want to, right. Catherine, do you desire to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And do you receive the gift of God's grace in Jesus and trust fully in his work of redemption on the cross and through his resurrection? Relying on God's grace, do you intend to live a life consistent with the example of Jesus and turn away from all that stands in opposition to his life and example? And empowered by the Spirit, do you intend to participate fully in the life of the church to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? You do. All right, why don't you head back here? Where'd Jenna go? Oh, there you are. Yeah, and Mike and Callie, if you guys want to come up. Good. Well, with that, we'd like to invite our kids to their time of worship. So parents, if you are new this morning, they're more than welcome to stay in the gathering. Otherwise, if you want to head downstairs and check them in, first grade and under over here and second through fifth grade over here. May God give you eyes to see all that is good, all that is good, the for Why don't you stand, if you would, just for a moment. Say hello to someone near you. Don't run too far. We've got a lot to cover, so say hello. Pass the peace of Christ around. Peace. friends. Actually, I'm going to have you remain standing, so if you would stay standing, if you can. If you've not been to Awaken, when we read the text, we typically stand for it, so if, you're, uh, if you took a seat, if you can, I'll ask you to stand, and we're going to begin in Amos chapter 5. This is the prophet. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord has a few things to say to Israel, and this is what he says. This is what the Lord says to Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile. Bethel will be reduced to nothing. 
Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Judah like fire, and it will devour them. Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a tax, a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, you've built stone mansions, but you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine, for I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, remain, or maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God Almighty, says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch black, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Pray with me. God, this morning as we come and we hear the word of the prophet to your people and your concerns for what's going on in their midst, I pray that we would not be deaf, but that we would have open hearts and open ears to hear the word of the Lord for us today. We thank you for the sacrament of baptism and the gift that it is to participate in these moments that are important in the life of our friends and family. Uh, so we pray that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you now. In the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. That's a pretty uplifting passage, don't you think? Man, a real downer. Why is the prophet so upset? Why is the prophet so angry? And Well, on behalf of the Lord. Why is the Lord so angry? Why is the Lord so upset? Maybe is a better question. Welcome to the sixth and final week of our series on values and DNA. Uh, this fall, we've been exploring what matters at Awaken and what do we say we value. We want to state those things out loud so that we're held accountable to holding them as a value. Uh, for a little bit of review, we've looked at Jesus and the life and teachings of Jesus being in the center of our community. We've talked about this idea of holism or a holistic gospel that, not, that doesn't care just about souls but actually bodies as well. And the good news of God is at work in all of the world. We've talked about uh, authenticity, that we want to be a church that models and with increasing degrees is authentic with one another and with God and with the world around us. We've uh, explored hospitality a couple weeks ago and the idea that we have experienced the hospitality of the divine and been welcomed to a table and we in turn want to do that, to set the table for people to see and hear and know God. And then last week, Melody so brilliantly led us in a conversation around beauty. Having been made in the image of God, 
uh, beauty and creativity as a category of knowing and understanding of God. I thought that was brilliant. Very, very well done. So this week, I want to talk about justice. Um, Four different times in this particular passage, the prophet, in this rant, the prophet speaks of justice and mentions that God is interested in justice, and not only that, but that the people of God would be interested in justice. But what is justice? Like, who defines it? How do we declare it or, or define what it means? And what does it mean for a church to say that they value justice? I'll start with a question. Are you involved with the work of justice because your church declares it as a value? Like, what does it mean for people to participate in the work of justice? And I'll just ask that question to start. Does it, does it mean that you are involved in the work of justice if your church declares it as a value? Uh, like, when we talk about justice, are we talking about law and criminals and judges and juries? Or is this like a biblical or theological idea? Said differently, when the Bible speaks of justice and when we speak of justice, are we talking about the same thing? So, does, does the world... Does the world we live in need justice? That's a question to think about. Does the world we live in and occupy day in and day out, like is there a need for justice? And does the Bible speak about it? Does the Bible care about it? Or did I just cherry pick one passage, which was pretty long actually, 24 verses or so. Uh, does the Bible talk about and care about justice? So that's what we want to do this morning. That's what I want to explore. Uh, in June of 2019, MPR, Minnesota Public Radio, uh, released a study in which they shared the news that in Elk River, Minnesota, uh, there is a proposal by Sherburne County officials to expand uh, an already existing ICE detention facility uh, from 300 beds to over 500 beds. Now the question is, why would a county jail want to expand their ICE detention facility from 300 beds to 500 beds? And this report let us know that uh, it's actually because ICE contracts with local county facilities and pays $100 a day per inmate or per detainee. So if the beds aren't filled with detainees, the county doesn't get paid. Effectively, somehow the federal government has incentivized local county jails to um, occupy or to have people in their jails and cells, because if they don't, they don't get paid. Uh, Sherburne County received over $11 million last year before expenses for their inmates inside of their ICE detention facilities. And the county commissioner, this is where it gets really interesting, Felix Schmiesing, can't make it up. He said, and I quote, we have a number of people that live in our area that work in that facility and we want to make sure that we continue to have employment for them. So if you follow that, the employment of a city or town is dependent upon detainees in a federal facility, county facility. Uh, in 2019, and CNN reported that in California, you may know that in the recent uptick uh, with the fires on the West Coast, that uh, there was a, a need for firefighters. We didn't have, have enough of them. And it came to light that many of the firefighters that were fighting the fires in California were actually California prison inmates. And it was reported that low-level offenders with good behavior records can train to become California firefighters, and they can earn $2.90 to $5.12 a day, and an extra $1 a day when fighting fires, and then potentially reduced prison sentences. Now, whether or not you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, that's debatable, but this is what I find interesting. Unfortunately, when those who have paid their debt to society served 
risked their lives fighting fires, get out of prison, they are then denied the opportunity to have that job because of our felony work procedures or, or laws uh, as it relates to convicted felons. Related to that, according to a Pew Research in 2017, um, blacks and Hispanics represent 28% of the U.S. adult population, but represent over 56% of the prison population. Uh, conversely, whites account for 64%, the majority of the population in the U.S., but only 30% of the prisoners. So disproportionately, somehow, we're incarcerating people of color as, as compared to white people in our country. Now, lots of debate as to why that is. That's not what I want to talk about today, but add to that, convicted felons can't vote or serve on a jury. So the Constitution of the United States says that you are promised a, a, a uh, jury of your peers, but of the already smaller 28% of the black and brown population of our country, 56% of those are disqualified to vote and be on a jury. Um, the New York Times reported in 2019 that the Constitution of the United States says that every person involved in a criminal case has the right to an attorney. Uh, in the event that the accused is not able to afford an attorney, a, a, a person is appointed to them. They're called public defenders. And in 2017, uh, one public defender from the state of Louisiana went on record to say and testified that he had, over, he had 197 cases on his docket at one point in time. Now, according to, a, this is not funny, according to uh, a study on attorney workload, uh, they studied like how long it would take to adequately defend particular offenses, which is what the Constitution promises someone who's accused when they get a public defender, that they will get someone who will adequately or reasonably defend them. Um, when studied, it would have taken 10,000 hours for this one public defender to adequately defend the people that were on his docket. And, that, and, and, and they, were in, they did more research, and in Louisiana, there were two dozen more public defenders who had more clients than this particular person. One guy had 413 clients on his docket at one particular time that the Constitution promised he would give a reasonably effective defense to. Of course, you can imagine who those people might have been, or the majority of them were black and brown people. Um, one more, uh, immigration, the Atlantic published an article in 2018, in the past four years, over 200,000 unaccompanied minors have made it into our immigration system. Most of them come from Guatemala and from Honduras and El Salvador. They were, they're running from violence and gangs and violence related to gangs and all sorts of other things. They come through Mexico, they come to our borders, and they basically self-identify themselves. They turn themselves over to border immigration officers where they are then required to appear in court. According to U.S. Immigration Court, uh, which is a civil court, they have the right to an attorney, but they are not given an attorney. So right now, in our immigration courts, there are four-year-olds defending themselves. 12% of people, kids, who are, have a lawyer get deported and sent back to the situations they came from. 80% of the kids who defend themselves get deported and sent back to the places that they came from. I could keep going. And at the risk of inciting a broad, depressive epidemic in our church, I'll stop. Um, I'll stop and I'll assume that we can all agree that there's no shortage of things or situations in our day-to-day -day lives, if we have eyes to see them, that are broken, unfair, inequitable, or unjust. But why? Like, 
How do we make that judgment? Why do we say that's unfair or that's not right or that's unjust? By what basis do we make that claim? I mean, a praying mantis, like no one would bat an eye if a praying mantis devoured their mate after mating with them, right? Or a honey badger, for that matter. Like, they're ruthless, and they care for nothing other than themselves, and in the animal world, we just let that happen, and no one checks that. No one's like on a honey, honey badger patrol. Or pandas. They have twins, and they abandon one in order to care for another. And no one says anything about it, but if a human were to do any one of those things, we would say, that's unjust. That's unfair. That's not right. Why? What's the basis for justice? And I would argue this morning that in the beginning of the story of God, we find the basis for what we determine or what we call justice. So from page one in the scriptures, if you don't know the story, humans are created in the image of God. And they are uh, set apart from honey badgers and praying mantis and panda bears as image-bearing creatures, meaning that every human has inherent dignity and worth as an image-bearing creature. No matter who you are, where you're from, how much money you make, what color your skin is, the image of God in every human demands respect, kindness, fairness, just treatment. And all humans are equal before God. This is the backdrop and the foundation of justice in the biblical conversation, that you and I are not like honey badgers or praying mantis, but we are made in the image of the creator and therefore deserve, uh, require dignity, respect, and fair, equitable, just treatment of one another. That there is, there's, it's level playing field at the foot of the cross, Sufjan Stevens would say. Well done, Sufjan. I'm just trying to break the tension a little bit. It's a little heavy. I know, I started off with a real heavy hitter. But the you and I are equal Like race, gender, class, sexual orientation, skin color. Like there is no marker that we give to one another that advantages one human over another in the eyes of God. This is the basis for justice in the scriptures. And the biblical story, and then, and then, and then, that humans are invited by God to like rule and reign, to help like run the world, to help execute God's desire or God's intent according to God's definition of what is good and evil or just, right? This is the basis of the whole story. We're made in the image of God, we're created equal with one another, that we all bear the image of God, and then we're invited to, with God, or with each other, rule and reign to execute God's desire, God's intent, God's definition for good and evil and justice. Everybody tracking so far? Now, the biblical story, and if you don't know the biblical story, just like watch humans and you get the same thing, um, at every turn reminds us that we as humans, we redefine what's good and evil, based on our own needs, desires, preservation of self. So we adjust what the creator says is good and evil, and at times we advantage one person over another, ourselves over someone else, or one group of people over another group of people. We redefine good and evil and justice to our own advantage at the expense of another. In the Bible, this is called sin. This is what's broken. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. Yes? Do you remember the playground at, in elementary school? Who were the kids that got picked on? They were the weakest kids. Right? It's like Darwin happening right before our eyes. This is why I would say the prophets continually call for the defense of the widow, the foreigner, or the alien in the scriptures. 
And this privileging, this advantaging of one human at the expense of another, it happens at a personal level, and it happens at systemic levels, and familial levels, and cultural levels, and societal, and civilizational levels. If you've read the story of the Bible, this is Egypt in the story, right? This is a whole society, a whole group of people, a manifestation and representation of the redefinition of good and evil, practiced and embodied, where one group of people benefits on the backs of, or at the behest of, or at the expense of another. In this case, it was Israel. This is what it looks like when sin gets ahead of steam. Entire cultures or civilizations profit on the backs of and at the expense of others, sometimes denying and at the very least degrading the image of God that someone else bears. Which brings us to the call of Abram in Genesis. So, Abram and his family in Genesis chapter 12 are invited by God to live and embody a certain way of being human in the world. It wasn't like Israel for Israel's sake. They were to be a model humanity. Like, this is what it looks like to be in right relationship, just relationship with each other and with God. One that recognizes God's definition, not ours, of good and evil and the inherent dignity and value of every human. They were to follow and love God by two things get repeated over and over and over again. So their response to God's invitation again and again and again in the scriptures is to do justice and righteousness. Do justice and righteousness. Do justice and righteousness. Not sing more worship songs and have more church services, but do justice and righteousness. This is why the prophet Amos says... God is saying, I'm tired of your songs. I'm tired of your singing. I'm tired of your sacrifices. I'm tired of your sacraments. I'm tired of your baptisms. When the hungry are hungry and the poor are poor and the oppressed are the oppressed and you say nothing. I am tired of it. I am not interested. That's the divine. Why? Because God cares about justice and God cares about righteousness. So to preach good news without justice is not good news. You know what I'm saying? Proverbs 31 says, bring about just righteousness, justice and righteousness, these two words. Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. Jeremiah 22, thus says the Lord. I mean, thus says the Lord. Bring about justice and righteousness. Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. Psalm 146, the Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. He loves the righteous, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. I could keep going, verse after verse after verse, over 40 of them in the Old Testament alone, where God invites the people of God to justice and righteousness as their response to God. So what are these two words, justice and righteousness? Because the idea of justice in the Bible is wrapped up in these two words that keep getting translated, justice and righteousness. Tzedakah and mishpat are the two Hebrew words. Tzedakah means to be right, or right relationship, or to be made right, and in Scripture, it's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's not just like one's personal holiness, like I'm righteous, but rather I'm in right relationship with my neighbor and those around me. I am seeing and honoring the image of God that each of you bear, and you likewise are doing the same. That's tzedakah. It's an ethical standard that we're asked to live into. That every human is on equal footing before God and treated as such, mishpat, is a verdict pronounced judicially. So it's not just a verdict that's given that's correct, but it refers to a standard of relating to one another, one that is right, just, or true. Maybe you could say congruent with God's definition of what's right, just, and true, and good. 
Now, sometimes, back to the question, like, when the Bible talks about justice and we talk about justice, are we talking about the same thing? Sometimes in the Bible, these two words can mean retributive justice, which is tit for tat. Like, you do the crime, you do the... Right? That's how we understand justice most of the time, retributive justice. If you did this, then you get that. That's just. More often than not, in the Bible, that is not what's being referred to. That's not Amos chapter 5. It's restorative justice. It's about right relationships between people. And the people whom God has identified as God's people, the invitation not to be just and to execute fair judgments, but to lift up those who have been pushed down. To bring up to the playing field that you are on those who have been disadvantaged and stepped on. That's what Amos is talking about. Restorative justice. So the people of God are invited not to pronounce judgment, rightly, but to participate in a way of being human that recognizes the image of God in every human being around them and works to bring those who have been disadvantaged up. That's justice. That's righteousness, according to Scripture. This is the invitation given to Israel to love God by doing justice and righteousness. And then, of course, this is exactly what Jesus does in his life. What Israel and we, you and I, cannot do because of our own proclivity to selfishness. Anyone? Anyone out there? Yeah, a little proclivity to choose yourself over me? No, I'm the only one. Awesome, okay. <laughs> I shouldn't be your pastor, <laughs> clearly. Jesus does this perfectly. This is why his life is so inspiring. Even if you don't believe he's the son of God or that he resurrected from the dead, his life alone is worth emulating because this is what he does. He walks around to all the people who have been marginalized and disenfranchised and pushed to the edges of the society, and he brings them back in, and he raises them up. He heals the, 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 the lame and, and gives sight to the blind, right? This is what Jesus does. He dies on a cross. He takes our brokenness all the way to its completion, which is separation from each other. And he says, in my resurrection, as I come up out, I'm now inviting you, the church, you, the people of God, you, the person, to follow and to do as I do. So what does this mean? To the church of Jesus Christ, justice, not tit for tat, that's part of the conversation, but according to scripture, the conversation the Bible is interested in having, restorative justice, tzedakah and mishpat, justice is foundational to the work of God in Christ. This is what God is doing in Jesus. And it is not good news for all of the people at the bottom looking up when you preach a gospel without justice. I don't know if you've ever been to that rally or that, that gathering where someone's talking about where will you go when you die and where will your soul spend eternity? That's important, but a holistic gospel cares not just about souls but about bodies. And when bodies are being oppressed... And when bodies are being disadvantaged, and when bodies are being pushed down at the expense of others, that's not good news. Can I get an amen, church? So, what would it look like for you and I, as a church, as a community, to say, we do care about souls. So we care about bodies and souls. We care about politics, and we care about economics, and we care about education, and we care about housing. We care about refugees. We care about foster care. We care about adoption. We care about policing. We care about, do you see what I'm saying? It's holistic. It affects everything. And when the people of God show up, what happens is not more of this. 
Do you know what I'm saying? But at least according to the prophets, over and over and over and over again, and at least according to Jesus who says, this is how you're supposed to do it, this happens. And humans, all who bear the image of the divine creator, are valued and given dignity and respect and honor. An opportunity to flourish as humans. So what is justice? What do we do with it? Reverend Dr. John Perkins says, justice is where God's wholeness is present and nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Is there anything broken when a four-year-old represents themselves in court? Is there anything missing? Is there anything broken or missing when, I didn't tell you this one, um, the prison phone business is a $1.2 billion business in America. In 2018, the state of Connecticut uh, the company that held that contract received $13.2 million, and 60% of that was then cut back to the prison as a kickback. So they've completely de-incentivized giving like, reasonable rates to prisoners to call their families. Is there anything missing or broken in that? That is messed up. That's not right. Justice means, I couldn't find the, the source for this, but I really liked it, so I'm going to say it anyways. It was in an article that I read, and I was like, who wrote this? They didn't say. Justice most simply means putting things right again, fixing, repairing, and restoring broken relationships and systems. I would say that what is unjust is unfair, inequitable, out of order, inherently oppressive, and inconsistent with the divine intent for human flourishing. That's mine. I'm going to say it again. What is unjust is unfair, inequitable, out of order, and inherently oppressive and inconsistent with the divine intent for human flourishing. That's unjust. Justice, then, is the repairing and restoring of that which is out of harmony in the world, where dissonance, where there is dissonance relation, relationally, it's unjust, where something is missing or broken. Justice is bringing to bear that which is needed to heal and restore. It's the elevation of the lowly and the marginalized and those who have been taken advantage of. And that's not just the job of the police and the lawyers and the judges. It's the invitation of God to the people of God. Have you ever heard that in a church? That part of our role as the people of God in the world is to be about the work of justice. To be the repairers of the breach. To stand in the gap, the prophet says. So what do you do? Three things I want to encourage you to do before we move to communion this morning. The first is lament. People who are often privileged often ask when given statistics like this or when confronted with the reality of this, what can I do? Which is an answer from privilege because you can do something. But for those who have been on the underside of the boot, who maybe have reserved to the fact that nothing can be done. It doesn't matter what we do or what I do. I can't do anything to change it. So to respond with what can I do first is a response of privilege. So I want to just like name that. It's not a bad impulse, but I would argue that if you cannot lament, or you cannot lament what you cannot feel, and you cannot feel what you've insulated yourself from. Say it again, Micah. You can't lament what you can't feel, and you can't feel what you're insulated from. 
You can't feel the weight of suffering and injustice if you aren't proximate to it. And so much of our lives is spent building walls that insulate us from suffering. And I just, I just want to like put it out there to the people of God, that may not be the best response for us. So what does it mean to move towards, to not build and insulate from, but to move towards in some way, shape, and form suffering? It's all around us. You don't have to look for it. It's not hard. So can you feel the weight of injustice? And can you lament that? Are you saddened by any of the things that you heard or that you hear on a daily basis? Does it break your heart? Do you like feel that in your body? Not just in your head. So can we first lament that this is not the world God created, this is not the world God came to save, or not the world that God came to create in saving in, through Christ, right? So first lament. Two, pick something, anything. I, we, watched, we used to watch this video as kids, uh, this hockey video, and it was just dumb. And he'd be like, hit or fight or do something. Like, do something, anything, pick something, right? You may think like, oh my gosh, what should I do? Or how could I be involved? Or what, like, pick some area of your life that's consistent with who and where you are and just lean in. Odds are, if humans are humans, you won't have to go far to find injustice, to find suffering. So housing, who lives where and why? You buying a house recently, or are you going to buy a house? Do you care about who lives where and why? Jim Crow of the North, produced by PBS. Really great, well, very interesting documentary about racial covenants and redlining in Minnesota. We're one of the worst offenders. Did you know that about our state? Just lean in a little. Just lean in, that's all. Incarceration, who's in prison and why? And where are they, and how are they treated, and why? Education. What schools get funded and why? Who has the best teachers? Where, where are the lowest teacher-to-student ratios and why? Just ask some questions. Lean in. Or send your kid to a school that doesn't have the best student-teacher ratios so that you're involved in suffering to some degree. Taxes. Who pays the most tax? Who pays the less tax? Why? Natural resources. The impact of business on land and communities near it. Why? I mean, I could just keep going, right? I'm trying to give you some, like, easy ones. Low-hanging fruit. The question is not whether or not there are issues of injustice or justice near you. The question is whether or not you have eyes to see them. So I want to I I help you. I want to try to train you. I want to try to give you glasses through which to see the work of the people of God in the world. And then three, lament, pick something. And then three, don't assume you can fix it. Or don't, don't assume that you have the answer. Or don't assume that you have what's needed to fix it. Sometimes action means uh, resourcing someone else that's far more knowledgeable than you. Sometimes it means to put yourself in a position of a learner and not a teacher. Sometimes it means you ask a lot of questions and meditate on those answers before you say anything to anyone, right? So don't assume you can fix it or you have the resources to fix it or you have the answer to fix it, but act, move, engage, lean in. I'll close with the question I started with. As a pastor, I want good things for you, and our church does its best to set you up to grow and to move and to be the people of God in the world. Are you involved in the work of justice in the world because your church says it's a stated value? And is that enough? Now, maybe you're here, 
and you're like, Micah, all I can do is like get behind the efforts of Awaken right now. And I'm so proud of our church, and I'm glad. I love this church. I'm glad that we say justice is a value. And right now, that's enough. Okay. But like as your pastor, if that's where we all stay for the next five years, we have failed you. If you all say, we're involved in the work of justice. I'm involved in the work of justice because my church states it as a value. I have failed you. When you show up to your workplace with the eyes to see the good news of God at work in the world and issues of justice and injustice, and you engage in those, that's a payday for me. That's why I do this. That's why we do this. When you show up to your school and you ask the questions that need to be asked about the administration that's running the show, that's a payday. I sit in the back and I go, yes, awesome, go, 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 further, go, go, go. When you... So pick something and lean in. Because I don't think that a gospel without justice is an option, at least according to the Bible. So I'm going to offer a word of prayer. I'm going to invite us to come to this table, which is a reminder of the life and death and resurrection of this Jesus the Christ that invites us into the world, not out of it, (laughs) to be people who embody good news which includes justice and righteousness. So pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the good news that you have come and that you offer life and healing. And not just the evacuation of our souls from this body and this place, but the restoration of, the reworking of, the reordering of a kingdom that is ordered and operating as you intended it, where justice flows like a river and righteousness is the norm, where love and equity is what we experience day to day. And so, God, we long for that. We want that. And we want to be found working for that to the degree that we can with the resources that are in our hands, uh, the skills and the knowledge that is in our heads and in our bodies. Uh, the stories, the sufferings, the pain even that is in our hands and in our bodies. We want that to be used for your work in the world. So as we come and we take your body and your blood, would you transform us into the people that you want us to be? So I just invite you to take a moment in silence to hear what the Spirit might be saying. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a new covenant written in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So in just a moment, we'll invite you to come forward from the side aisles to the center. There'll be three stations, gluten-free is in the middle. You'll be invited to take the bread 
dip it in the cup and hear the words, the body broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Um, before you do that, if the kids come up here by the time I'm done with this little blessing, they'll come down and we'll give them honey. And if they don't, we'll go find them and you guys can come up here. But this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's been made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith or you who have little, you who've been here often or have not been here for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because I invite you, but because the Lord, the resurrected Christ, invites you to be known and to be fed here. So let your kingdom come 
There's a world at war, caught in suffering, silent casualties. Oh, God, grant us peace. In these sleepless nights, I can hardly breathe. Despite brutality, I know that we'll be free. I know that we'll be free. So let the light in, keep it shining Let it break into the darkness All the love dares us to see We'll all be free And in these desperate times Love will light us Love will join our hands Teach us to have known And so Free, 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 free
Tell your mother, tell yourself, tell everybody we'll all be free. Tell the lovers, tell the haters, tell the prisons, tell the jailers, tell the world, tell everybody we'll all be free. celebrate communion and baptism, like word and sacrament, like it doesn't get more orthodox Christian than this, right? And I just wonder what the divine is saying, like after this. Like if it ends here, I think what we heard for, from Amos to the Israelites would be similar to what we would hear. But if it doesn't end here and we leave readied to engage and love and give ourselves away in the, name of the, in the name of the Christ, then I think God would say, yeah, tell your mothers, tell your fathers, tell the jailers, tell, your, tell everybody. So I think you know what to do. So that's all I have to say. See you next week. Okay, wait, wait. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together with joy in their hearts. Amen. Okay, get out of here.
fighting. We're alone. 